From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Sloane Crosley is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, which is a Thurber Prize finalist, and How Did You Get This Number? She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times and lives in Manhattan. She will be guest author at the Thurber House on Tuesday, October 13th, just a few days after her new novel, The Clasp, has been released. Welcome to Craft, Sloane Crosley. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, we're certainly happy to have you, and uh, we're welcoming you now after your first novel, right? Uh, the Clasp. This is something different from the last two bestsellers, which were collections of essays. It's funny, I like the implicit suggestion that, that this one is obviously a bestseller as well. Yes. <laughs> My other two bestsellers. <laughs> um, but yeah, this one is um, obviously um, quite an extreme departure um, because it is made up. That's the <laughs> primary quality. <laughs> well, it's just made up. Um, and uh, yeah. so tell me about just making up things. How does this change your writing for you? Well, it's interesting, you know, the grass is always always greener, I suppose. Um, it, you know, it's, you feel very constrained after a while by nonfiction, um, which I'll return to, you know, people always refer to, you know, the leap from, from nonfiction to fiction just because writing fiction really is objectively much harder. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go back. <laughs> okay. I haven't abandoned them. But, um, you know, you're sort of used to these constraints and you think, gosh, I wish I could just sort of take the brakes off and, and say whatever I want and make up these people and create an entire world and have it not just be sort of a Romana class, but something that, you know, actually is sort of epic and sweeping and, and involves different locations. In my case, it's Normandy and Paris and Miami and LA and New York and, um, you know, a, a rural, uh, liberal arts college, all these things. Um, and, the second you get that, of course, you think, "Oh my gosh, everything I'm writing is my fault." <laughs> I wish I had. I wish I could blame some of this on the facts of the case, just what happened. But um, right. you know, the responsibility for fiction is is both wonderful and and kind of overwhelming at the same time. I mean, it's interesting. I've, uh, I've dabbled a little bit in each, and um, I think that my feeling was nonfiction held all the difficulties of being responsible to the people that you are, you know, there are always other people in your nonfiction essays. And I always felt like there's a certain overwhelming responsibility to them to make them feel like you're not misrepresenting them in some way. Whereas fiction, you can do what you want. Yes, that is very true. I mean, unless you're writing about a bowl of pineapples and there's no, you know, no one's going to get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) At least not in the the psychological way. Um, But you know, you do have that responsibility, but you can also, you can control how much they're in it. You know, I mean, I've written about um, friends, I've written about, you know, my parents, I've written about people I'm not friends with anymore, in which case, you know, everything's sort of out the window anyway, and they're disguised to such a degree that no one knows who they are. Um, But, you know, you can do what I always sort of refer to in uh, nonfiction as these kind of Hirschfeldian, you know, the, the artist um, Hirschfeld, uh, the cartoons, these sort of sketches where you can have, you can sort of throw a person into relief with, you know, a couple of lines of like the right piece of dialogue with them and then just have them take their leave. But with 
fiction, you know, the thing is with essays, and this is going to be a revolutionary thing I'm about to say on the radio, mm -hmm. is that they end. <laughs> they just end. <laughs> and there's this, this long slog of the novel where you can't just, you know, I mean, it's sort of creative writing 101 where the show not tell principle. You can't just say, oh, here's a couple of things that this character said and get a total sense of them when you really have to live with them. Um, for so long. So, like, one way around that in nonfiction is I definitely feel, um, you know, responsible to, the way I would say it is sort of to tell the story how it would tell itself if it could. Um, you know, the, the most, you know, if you can get the closest to, to what you feel in your heart really, really happened. Um, but with, with fiction, you just have to spend more time with them and risk the sloppiness of your character, of your reader thinking in one chapter. Well, I really like these people. I'm really rooting for character X. And then, you know, switching in the next chapter, maybe without you guiding them there, you know, it's just because mm -hmm. they've, they're sick of that person or they've grown to love a person that you don't like, you know, it's, you're just spending, I just think the real estate is, is, different for, right. for non-fiction than fiction. Sure. And tell me about some of these characters and, uh, you know, reveal the ones that you grew to really dislike as you were writing them. Uh, no, that's <laughs> a joke. But uh, you, you are talking about spending a lot of time with these people and uh, these characters that you've created. And, and, and sometimes you do find you, you, they've gone off in a direction you didn't expect. And all of a sudden they're someone you're, you're maybe wondering, how did I portray them earlier? Is that really how I want to? Does that cause you, as you discover more about these characters, to say, eh, maybe I need to go back and rewrite part of the beginning? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a very good question because it's sort of how... It, I used to think that people who, who spoke, um, you know, especially as a nonfiction writer for so long, um, people, uh, authors who spoke of their characters as if they were real, as if you know the dialogue just came out of them or that doesn't seem like something so-and-so would do, or that's the kind of person they are. And I thought, well, you guys are sort of slightly cracked in the head, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and now I realize that um, they are. They actually totally are, but I'm one of them. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's like a weird sort of form of insanity, um, where I have three uh, main characters in the class. I mean, it's about a group of friends, um, but there are really three that I focus on that sort of fall into a bit of a love triangle after not being in heavy communication with each other for about 10 years post-graduation, um, and they sort of reunite at a wedding. Um, and it's two um, guys and a girl, which was sort of an interesting process, um, you know, writing a book from the perspective that's mostly male. Um, but I started out really with um, only two. It was a guy named Victor and a girl named Kezia. And I had such sympathy for Victor. Victor was sort of this Eeyore-like character who got fired from his job, who didn't get the girl, who, you know, he's, he's like Job. <laughs> and um, as I've gone along in the narrative, I mean, there were times where I thought, I, I just think he's a little selfish and maybe a little bit whiny. And I don't know how to dial this back. And it was disturbing to me because I thought, he's the first person when I started writing, and therefore in a lot of ways he was meant to be most like myself. So what is that there for? You know, there's like a reflective quality in these people that come from your imagination. Um, and then there was a third guy that popped up, the third narrator, Nathaniel, who's supposed to be this very good-looking, very cool guy, um, you know, sort of hyper-smart, hyper-literary, um, just, you know, moved out to L.A. to sort of sell his wares there. 
Um, and he was supposed to be this sort of womanizing, unlikable person. And while I wasn't looking, he kind of became my favorite. Mm-hmm. So I love the the fact that you said that they reflect different parts of your personality, so that you can you can look at it and say, oh, this is you know, Nathaniel is uh, when I am at my most engaged with people, right? Or in e and um, Victor is is that time when I want to be left alone. Uh, and <laughs> I like the fact that you're, you know, you're questioning, what does this say about me as a person? A lot of people talk about, a lot of authors say, you know, after they've written a text, they look back at it and say, well, you know, um, maybe I would have written it differently if I had known more about myself at the beginning. Did you feel like at the be- <laughs> that you had learned a lot about yourself as you wrote about these fictional characters? Well, I mean, it took me, um, it took me five years to write the book. So I used to work at um, Random House, actually, during the day um, uh, for about 10 years, uh, and I quit to write this book. Um, And so it hadn't even occurred to me, but I was doing, I did an early interview um, with with the author Am Holmes, and I was on stage, and she looked at me and she said, so you started writing this five years ago, so you're a different person now. You were a different person than you were when you started the book. Um, and it hadn't really occurred to me, but if you think of it like college, but maybe except for, you know, if you're on the five-year program at college, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that I, my sympathies just sort of shifted a little bit. Um, you know, I think that I was experiencing a lot weirdly. I mean, Victor gets fired from his job. I did not get fired from my job. I left voluntarily and quite sadly. Um, but, you know, he spent a lot of time at home. You get, you know, it can be a little bit sort of depressing making. Um, it can be a little aimless, hard to structure your time. Um, you know, there's that old adage, like, you want something done, you give it to the busiest person in the office, and you are living the reverse of that adage, where it just takes forever to do your laundry. <laughs> um, and that, I so um, imbued Victor with so much of that. And now that I've become accustomed uh, to sort of this new format of working um, and to the, to the writing, and as the book sort of built into something that was so much larger than him, um, I had to go back because some of his worldview seemed um, sort of unpleasantly myopic, as opposed to just painting a picture of it. You know, I'm like, I'm not sure I want, you know, my readers don't have to um, like everybody in the book, but I want them to spend, want to spend time with them. <laughs> so um, that was important to me. And it's funny that we've been talking about Nathaniel and Victor, but we haven't talked about Kezia, which is, or Kezia, sorry, yeah. um, um, to, to figure out it's now. It's like Fez. What's that? <laughs> well, Like um, Fez, Kezia. Yeah. Kezia, okay. Kezia is, um, you know, f- female. And it might have been like the, the thought that occurred to me was, okay, is this the character that's most um, important to her because she's the same gender or, um, or not? And, and that's just sort of an yeah. authorial thing. But did you come out of it feeling like you had said that uh, uh, Nathaniel, you grew to like him a lot better? Was that your favorite character by the end? Well, he would be him most fun to write. I mean, because he started off as a bad guy. Um, I mean, insofar as, you know, I mean, this, isn't, this isn't a heist book. It's a, it's a comedic novel. So, um, right. But, you know, he started off as, as, as perhaps not the most, you know, objectively not sort of likable on paper, but those people are really fun to write. Um, and I think it probably shows in the writing um, or in the sort of portrayal of him. Um, and then for her, she was so... Um, 
she's so much different uh, than I am, which was really surprising because I thought the same thing you did. Um, and maybe it's a knee-jerk reaction, but you had it, I had it, which is, you know, <laughs> we share the same the same parts. She's going to be the closest to me. <laughs> I mean, it's the most, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous, uh, I know, I know why you had the reaction. I had the same one and it, it's, it's natural. Um, but she's, she makes certain observations that I've definitely made. I've been walking, you know, um, she's much more uh, body conscious than, than I am, but I have been walking along the streets of Manhattan and seen, uh, done that test where I see a woman in front of me and I think, okay, well, if I can lob a, a, a golf ball between that woman's thighs, I'm jealous. Um, if I can, lob, if I can lob a, uh, a bowling ball, I'm, I feel bad for her. She should probably go to the hospital and eat something. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, that's a good test for body dysmorphia. I think I'm okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, she, and so that's the kind of stuff that I felt you could only give to a woman. Right. Um, so there's going to be lots of, on a sort of, um, micro level, there's, there's lots of me in her, but her overarching, um, personality where she's, uh, so, uh, so uptight and I can feel herself becoming sort of almost rude to people because she's working for this sort of mad woman jewelry designer, the relationship she has with her boss, this, this sort of, also this feeling of, of, you know, at once being really mad at the world for not giving her a break and also not sticking up for herself. Um, not really me. Um, although I do love the idea that, uh, I feel like throughout most of the book, she doesn't feel like she has a choice romantically, that she's sort of at other people's whims. Um, and then, without giving away towards the end of the book, she realizes that she's more in control of her sort of own love life than she thinks she is. Right. You know, one of the things that I wondered about uh, in the book was she's got this mad woman, uh, like you said, jewelry designer. And I thought, is this <laughs> some reflection of your own? Uh, that was actually the part that I thought, did you work for um, the uh, <laughs> the literary equivalent of the Devil Wears Prada? Um, you know, <laughs> where it's like, well, it's not fashion, but it's, you know, working at, at Random House or something like that. And that doesn't sound like it's the No, it's not. Again, it's sort of the macro level. I mean, the thing is, you can really... Um, if you work in any arts industry, or honestly, I really think any industry, period. I mean, I think if I worked for a lamp factory, um, there would be big, huge, industrial complex lamp factories, and there would be small, like, artisanal lamp factories. I mean, I think that you can sort of, you know, as, as, as sort of rarefied as that world might seem on the surface of, oh, okay, you know, the, the independent jewelry world of the meatpacking district in Manhattan, you know, it could really be anywhere and there are some parallels to publishing. I happen to have loved, loved, loved my boss um, at, at Vintage Books. Um, I mean, it was like a forced divorce when I quit. So that's really like in a larger sense, not right. <laughs> couldn't be further from my relationship with him. Although they do, you know, there, there's a devil with Prada aspect to her boss, but I feel like they get along better than that. There's a mutual respect better than that. Um, and I think that, you know, the boss also recognizes that she is the one with whether she likes it or not, sort of the most seniority um, that uh, Kezia is the one she really relies on the most, which is sort of the opposite of, of Devil Wears Prada, who doesn't yeah. rely on anyone. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but yeah, there are certain, again, that sort of, I mean, the details in general in this book um, are going to come, you know, largely from these sort of minor things that are easy to insert. So, for instance, 
um, Kezia used to work for a major uh, jewelry company, um, and the five-year anniversary corporate gift was a crystal paperweight. Um, and that happens to be what we got at Random House for our five-year anniversary. It was a book, just <laughs> in a crystal paperweight. And I showed the book to a friend who worked for one of these big companies. And she was like, how did you know that? And I thought, well, it's not that revolutionary that you would get a crystal paperweight <laughs> for five years at any company, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just it's the little things that are transferred over. But, um, no, she's not based on, she's not based on, my old boss at Random House. Okay. Darn it all. I was really hoping for, you know, some, some juicy revelations of... Uh, some juicy revelations. Right. Listen, there are people... I mean, are there people... I mean, you work in any industry, I and mean, are there people um, like that? Of course. I mean, I had right. a boss once, um, one of my first bosses where, uh, you know, this is sort of the generational technological gap, too, where um, she had um, reduced the size of a document on her desktop and screamed my name, and I came running in, and she thought she had deleted it, and I sort of leaned over slowly and boop, clicked the mouse, and it expanded again. And she was like, oh, thank God you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, so, you know, but that's a really positive so, you know, side of it. Yeah, but that was also in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably better now. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we hope. Or there's white out on the screen whether she made mistakes. Sloan Crosley, thank you very, very much for talking to me today. And we're, I'm looking forward to you coming to town on uh, Tuesday, October 13th with the Thurber House, and we'll have all the ticket information on the website. And um, congratulations on the uh, publication of what's sure to be, as you, as we've said, your third bestseller. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, and it was so much fun to talk to you. I can't wait to come. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>